Strange things are afoot at the Circle K. Welcome to my latest experiment. This is the big one, the one I've been waiting for all my life. I just want to relax. Nice lukewarm bath. <laughs> I don't know how much longer I can hold this. Sarah Oh, look. Carnage. Dead. Dead, dude. Well, what's fun about that? Quite sweet, really, aren't they? God, I love this street. No one. Welcome to the birds. That was my line. Ha <laughs> ha. I've been waiting a week to go dog birds. <laughs> Did we it's change the birds. name of the podcast? No. <laughs> Why? Is it called Dub Birds now? I don't understand. <laughs> What's happening? No, it's Dub Birds. Who episode. are you people? Is this my podcast? This, no. No, it's not your podcast. As it is of the thing, this is a, a corporation for chatcast, you evil monster. You told me that this podcast was for kids and it's for the chatcast. Dare you? I didn't understand any of that. Me neither. I feel lost. In the description, it says that this show thingy, that this podcast is for the chat cast. No, it doesn't. Yes, it does. No, I wrote the description. It definitely does. Pull it up. It does. All right. Introduce the episode, you. Fine. Welcome to the birds. This is this is a Bill of Claire's excellent adventure show. Did you say this is? Yeah, she totally did. Okay. Continue. That was me shaking my head, smiling. Anyways, this this is a podcast called Bill and Claire's Excellent Adventures. I'm Claire, your host, with my partner and my guest host. Partner is Billy Das, and and guest host is Mom Das, which is supposed to be D, the D word, but I can't say the D word, or she'll give me the or she'll give me the pissed off look. Can dork. I just clarify for a minute that the D word is Danielle and not anything obscene? It's dork. All right, it's <laughs> definitely not. It's definitely not. Definitely is the D word. Not. It is. De- <laughs> oh my god, you're both fired. <laughs> what? I didn't even say your name. He's fired. You could be the new co-host. It could be called. It could be called D word at Claire's Excellent Adventures. All right, so. We're here today to talk about the birds, and uh, this is actually going to wrap up our Operation Master of Suspense, our initial dive into the films of Alfred Hitchcock. If you haven't caught the other episodes so far, we watched Psycho first, then we watched Rope, which Claire hated, and then Rear Window, and we're finishing out with the birds. But this was the scariest one so far. Oh, do you think so? What uh, was particularly scary for you? The birds! (laughs) That's, yep. I set that up. <laughs> Walked right into that one. So what about the birds did you find frightening? <laughs> okay. The birds pecking the, the guy's eyes out. Oh, yeah. That's, that's pretty that's scary. Than solid, the solid corpses. Mm-hmm. Scarier than the corpses. And then my favorite part in the birds was when she comes to the guy's house. It's just peeking. From under, from under the boat, it's just like, when is he gonna find out? And she sees him walking and goes into the house, and then he runs out. and He's like, huh, huh, there. And then he, and then he runs back in and grabs his binoculars and looks out, and then he sees her. Yeah, I love how she hides in the bottom of the motorboat. Like maybe he'll be fooled. Possibly he will think that motorboat is driving itself. What's that <laughs> boat drifting in the bay doing? Wait a second. Oh. I bet that's where the person is. I, you know, what I thought was the. 
The Birds was not a first watch for me and, and definitely wasn't for you, Danielle, but I had forgotten how much of a lunatic these two are. Like, like uh, both of them, really. It's, I mean, her, uh, what's her name? Mel- Melanie? Is it Melanie? Melanie. Yeah, Melanie and... Right. and Mitch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Melanie Mitch. and Mitch. Yeah, like, Melanie is a total lunatic. Like, give her yes. a chance to lie. She's gonna tell a whole bunch of lies right in a row for no reason other than boredom, I like suppose. She says that, like, she says that she went to college with Annie, was visiting for the weekend, and decided to drop off the Ludbirds. She didn't even know her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then it turns out that she tells all these lies and and gets into all these hijinks as a desperate cry for attention because she never had a maternal influence, which matches up perfectly with Mitch, who has a mom that just desperately needs to be needed. So it's actually a remarkably deep level of character development for like what's essentially a creature feature. So did you do you like the birds, Danielle? I do. Yeah, and Claire, did you you enjoy this movie? Mm-hmm. I just I am not a fan of this movie. Yeah, yeah, I don't. You're I don't a care fan for of Rope. Absolutely. And you hate the birds. First well, of all, didn't I didn't say I hate the birds. I, birds are fine. The birds is I think it's okay. I really like all the stuff with the birds, and I and I like the scariness of it. I find the first part. Just strange. Wrong. <laughs> like, wrong. Yeah. Well, not wrong, but I. I mean, I don't know. I'm. I'm not too terribly interested in the like the bored dilettante who's like, I'm just gonna mess with people's day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I don't know. Maybe I'm being too hard on the birds. I don't know. I like that part of it and the setup for a couple of reasons. Number one, especially for this time period, but frankly, even kind of now, it, it's not really common that you have a movie where there's a couple that are kind of interested in each other and the woman is the one that is aggressively pursuing the man. Sure, sure. And so I like that and I like that it's different. I also like the juxtaposition of the city girl with the small town fishing community. Sure. And I I love the scene where they're in the diner and everybody is sort of like, I mean, but you know, all this started when you showed up. I like the diner scene a lot. I think that's probably my favorite scene in the movie with the guy, it's the end of the world. Yeah, the end of the world guy's hilarious. Like, uh, hey, I think there's some birds outside. It's the end of the world. It's the end of the world. Like, uh, that that would be, if I was in the movie, uh, that would be my character, would mm-hmm. be the exactly. drunk going, that is oh, exactly. it's the end of the world. Right. Like, yeah, I've been saying for, for years now, it's the end of the world, but it's, it's the end of the world. This time it actually is. But <laughs> it I find... actually is, but all these people escape. But it's very hard because the only way to stay... A, a, probably the only way to survive is to have a steel cellar door and to just stay in a cellar. Not stellar. Cellar. Mm-hmm. Stay in a cellar. Yeah, but they're on the water. Can't have a cellar on the water. They flood. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so there's there's no escaping the menace of the birds. Yeah. Fortunately, we've killed like half the birds on the planet since then, so <laughs> What? You take that birds. Well, I mean that you, that means that they still outnumber us like 10 to 1. So Yeah, but we could take them. Mm, I mean, 10 so birds sure. to me, I could take 10 birds in a fight. 20 birds in a fight, I'm probably not going to win. It really depends on the birds because I had some ducks growing up that could ha- 100% have taken you in a fight. <laughs> They were huge and very aggressive. Well, that's that's the old think problem, right? Is is would you rather fight uh, one giant horse or a mm-hmm. hundred 
tiny horses. Why are we fighting horses? I don't know. We're talking about birds. The actual thing. Would you rather fight one giant bird or a hundred tiny birds? Um, One giant bird. Neither. Neither, because if, if we're talking giant bird, right? So like a bird larger than a human. A dragon. is, is <laughs> a, dragon. a dragon. A dragon is a lizard. That's what- It's a it, mutated lizard, boy. It No, I think technically it would be like a, ter- a pterodon. Uh, but no, if we're going with contemporary species, and it's definitely going to be a bird of prey, which means you're not going to last more than a few minutes against its talons, which, by the way, I would like to point out, I've always found very perplexing- that the birds in the movie The Birds attack with their beaks <laughs> and not with their talons. You said the birds in the movie The I Birds. I know, I don't know. <laughs> the, the aviary creatures in uh, the film The would Birds. Would you call that an ornithological perspective? I would call that an ornithological perspective, yes. I, I think that's my... I think overall that's that's my favorite part of um, Alfred Hitchcock movies. And, and I mean this in all seriousness, is that... I think that he was really good at injecting some small sciencey facts into his film and telling a completely ridiculous story wrapped around it. It's not I don't mean so much that it's madness what he winds up writing. Um I I think that he's he's quite successful at at creating the thrillers and I think he does earn that master of suspense, but all the movies that we watched, you know, Psycho ends in an explanation of multiple personality issues. Mm-hmm. The Birds has injected into it random ornithological, orn- ornithological, ornithological, ornithological. Yeah. I learned a words. whole lot about <laughs> birds from that mean old lady in the diner. Yeah, yeah, she was like, right. There are a hundred billion birds, and I was like, really? I, Tell but, me more. In in my <laughs> head, that was. Like the old lady character was Alfred Hitchcock being pitched the birds, and he goes, "No, no, 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 none of this is likely to happen because there's there's all these birds, and this is not what they do. This is not how they work." And then he gets sold on the story. Uh, no, no, William, no, back up. The birds is based on a real life event. Really? Yes, yes, it is. I did the research for the podcast episode. What? The Wait, Birds was made in 1963. In 1951, there was a weird freak incident in California in a small fishing village where birds, um, in this case seagulls, I believe, they said seabirds, so I'm not sure if that's gulls or a different species, but a huge flock of them suddenly crashed into the village and they were breaking windows and they were dive bombing cars and all kinds of stuff. And nobody had an explanation for it. And it wasn't so much that they were attacking the humans, it was more that they were disoriented and they were so they were creating a lot of damage, but it really scared people like because drunk birds. <laughs> yeah, right, like drunk birds. That's a very good description. And then a woman named um I believe it's Daphne du Maurier. Although I am so not fluent in French. It could be merrier. <laughs> it could be merrier. The more the merrier. Uh, anyway, she wrote a short story that was inspired by the incident, but was a you know fictionalized thriller type um, setup. And then Hitchcock adapted her short story for the film. And But anyway, so people had sort of theorized after the fact that these birds may have consumed... A CIA experiment? No, they consumed a type of algae that's composed of diatoms that are toxic. And in high levels, they can induce psychosis, basically, in birds. Um, so but the nobody... birds is psycholite. In yes. that it's uh, yes. what happens yes. when birds go psycho. That's right. But then, but nobody was really sure. And um, they found, they what was it? They collected some, um, 
Oh, I forget what it was. They had some kind of specimen that was in a museum that was from the same year that that happened. They tested it and they found the presence of this algae. So they were thinking that's what it was. And then in, um, I think it was like 1991 or something, it happened again with pelicans. And those they were able to test and conclusively confirm that it was the algae. Well, great. Uh, So, I mean, now every time you hear about the red tide off the coast of Florida, you'll understand just what a terrifying place Florida is to live. You've got meth-addicted Florida man, and you've got um, diatom-addicted psychosis seagulls. There you go. I have to tell you, though, I had always just assumed... Wait, what did you say? What's Florida man? Oh, you don't know? Wow, that's a whole other... Florida man, it's... When they write news articles, Claire, they'll often say the state of a person and they'll be like, like Michigan man, Michigan area man shovels driveway. But then usually when it's a Florida area man, he's doing something crazy, like eating somebody's face or something like that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Or robbing a Wendy's with an alligator. No, it was a liquor store. That was my favorite. It was a Wendy's. No, I swear it was a liquor store. Wendy's. 100%. Seen the video. I wonder if it happened twice, because I've seen the video, too, and it was a liquor store. Look, first of all, an alligator is an excellent weapon for a holdup, because you don't know what's going to happen. That's true. They're very, very <laughs> creepy. I've got an alligator, and I'm not afraid to let go of him. There you go. Um, Yeah, so Florida is a large state, has a very large population, and it has some issues with drugs and alcohol and a high poverty rate. And that particular combination leads to some really wild news stories, and it's become a thing on the internet. And so now there are people who just collect stories that begin with the headline Florida man, or there's also one for Florida woman, and they just create like this huge collection of ridiculously wild Florida man stories. Like robs a Wendy's with an alligator. Right, like that. Like, for example, if you rob a Wendy's with an alligator... You can't throw your alligator through the drive-thru window because now nobody, not only can is nobody afraid of you anymore, they're afraid of the alligator running <laughs> around the store, the there's no way for them to give you the money because there's an alligator in the way. So really, an alligator is only threatening in like a kinetic energy perspective, mm-hmm. you know, like a potential the energy. potential for what could happen. Right, yes. right. I have collected an alligator. And I am crazy enough to let go of it. There you go. You better give me some money. Uh, but the, the problem is, is Florida man is usually not thinking two steps ahead. It's more like checkers and then chess. <laughs> that, I mean, that pretty much sums up every Florida man story. Yeah, it does. That's really Which is does. a shame because I hate Florida man. I love Florida. Yeah, but the Florida man stories are so funny. Yeah. I mean, like. You could do a Florida man story. I am Florida man. Uh, Your dad definitely could do a Florida man story. When we were in college, one of his favorite activities was to go to a grocery store in the middle of the night and run through it yelling, I am Batman (laughs) with cape and all, I believe, and then periodically reorganize their inventory. I mean, favorite's a word that's maybe not accurate there. Okay, sure. Wasn't your favorite. Have I done it? Yes. (laughs) Repeatedly? Yeah. Look, have I almost started forest fires? Yes. Have I burnt my eyebrows off? Yes. Have I done pyrotechnics in an apartment? Yes. (laughs) Also, yes. Have you killed a man? 
No. 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 <laughs> Not so far as I know. No, but he and his roommate frequently burned off their eyebrows. What? They, they yeah. liked to play with fire, which you should not do. No, don't play with fire. That makes sense it's why you have no dangerous. eyebrows. Exactly. That's what I've been saying. Don't play with fire. You might look like me. <laughs> that's No that's hair. Beautiful. No hair. All the hair that should be on the top of your head is on your chin and you have a, and your and the top of your mouth and you have barely any eyebrows. That's true. All of that is true. Florida man. And maybe I mean, you, you have more used eyebrows to have All right, uh, so we got brown. off onto a tangent on Florida man um, talking about pelicans and diatoms oh. and true stories. Yeah, no, but I have a uh, so it is a true story. But here's the thing: I always assumed that the birds was inspired by a true event, just not that true event, because I grew up in Florida. I went to the beach all the time. I'm sure you have some similar stories at some point. I've also been to the beach. And, yeah. And if you try to take, you think like, oh, I will take a picnic to the beach. It will be delightful. Oh, no, that's a huge mistake. And it's a terrible mistake because the seagulls will dive bomb you and steal the food out of your hand. And when seagulls I Seagulls are bastards. Yeah, they are. They're evil flying rats. They are <laughs> not. The, the seagull from Rescue Rangers, right? Is there mm-hmm. a seagull in that? No. That's a- um, That's a pelican? No, it's not a pelican. It's um the seagull from Little Mermaid. Okay, is yes, not to that be trusted. one's a seagull. Okay, I was gonna say I think the other one's an albatross. I don't know where I was going with this. Anyways, go back to your story. Okay, uh, but when I was little though, um, my mom took me to the beach one time, and I was really young. I was probably three years old or something. Just the once? No, but this particular one was a once-off thing, and I had some kind of food, and the seagulls started attacking me, and they were swarming, and they were you know, dive bombing me and stuff. And my mom thought that it would make a great photo. And so, <laughs> I'm not playing. And so she took pictures of these seagulls like swarming around me and diving at my face and stuff. And in the moment, it was terrifying and probably very loud with lots of screaming and a sobbing <laughs> child. But in my house, my whole life growing up, I don't really remember the incident, but I remember the photo there's this really artistic, beautiful, large print photo of me from behind, so you can't tell that I'm screaming in terror, with seagulls just all over the place, and I was terrified of seagulls as a child. Actually, this is a really great story, because it's a good transition into something that is about the birds that I feel like we should be talking about outside of Florida Man. Yeah. You know, Claire, Like we, we talk a lot about what Hollywood was like and is like and how easy it is for the machine that is filmmaking to disregard kind of human lives and and be sexist or misogynist you know alfred hitchcock was in this movie basically like your mom's mom and your mom in this story was a lot like tippy hedron who played uh, melanie daniels the socialite who was looking for something to do with her time they had a pretty nasty relationship on this set and there are a lot of stories or discussions about how Alfred Hitchcock treated her on the set. And some of those stories include the fact that like in that scene in the closet at the, the end of the upstairs bedroom at the end of the movie where she's being attacked by birds, Alfred Hitchcock was on the other side of that camera throwing birds at her for some of the scenes where she was being hit by birds. And it was uh, very upsetting to her for that experience. And, and, from what I can tell based on what the stories are. And, you know, I don't know how much of these stories are true or not. Definitely not a consensual filmmaking experience. 
Um, Wait, she's probably still alive today. You could legit she is. ask her. We looked it up. She's what, did you say 90? Yeah, I think Tippi Hedren's 90 or 93, something like that. But I, I believe that she has come out and talked about the fact that that was not a particularly good or safe Loved film set experience. experience. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, and I, you know, I don't know to what extent the level is there, but there, as far as I can tell, was no love lost between Alfred Hitchcock as a filmmaker and Tippi Hedren as an actress. It sounded like he was pretty hard on her. Claire, you really enjoyed the movie. If you hear that story that Alfred Hitchcock was not particularly good to Tippi Hedren on that set, does that change your perspective of the movie? Do you enjoy it less or does it change how you think about it? I'm curious. No? How come? Because the movie is great. You don't need to know about how the actors went through unless they died during the movie. Hmm. Interesting. All right. But so you, well, if, if an actor... Stories. If an actor has a hard time on the set or you think that a, a director is particularly abusive in the capturing of a scene, if the scene is good, it's okay for you, you think? Well, it... I have this idea in my head that in most of these questions, because I think we've talked about it before, you been... you really envision yourself as the director in this scenario. Yeah. What if you were Tippi Hedren on set trying to do your role and the director was chucking birds at you like he just didn't care if that bothered you? I wouldn't care if we were shooting. I would pull out his, would pull out something and just <laughs> smack him. Yeah. Like that flashlight. You'd be throwing <laughs> birds back at Alfred Hitchcock? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Grab the bird. Go. But I would imagine that Tippi Hedren probably did not feel like she could do that because she could lose her job. And this was her first role. It was, yeah. So if she doesn't, you know, if she gets fired from it and it and her acting never makes it into a theater, then she doesn't get her breakout role. And if they do wrap the filming and Alfred Hitchcock tells all of his filmmaker buddies that she was a nightmare to work with, she's never getting another job in Hollywood. So she probably would not have been in a position where she felt like she could fight back very much. Honestly, what I would have done is tell is told him he could have not chucked them. He could have like put them on a stick and then just cut the stick part out, just like put them on her and just pret- and just like slightly peck her, like they do now, like in those scenes where like they where like there's like physical contact. If you look really closely, they never touch the person. It's just editing or like a slow mo, mm-hmm. like in the slow feast commercial where the guy where the where the old guy is just shaking his cheeks and then it looks <laughs> really cool. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. And then you realize that he's just doing this. Uh-huh. You, that's pretty much what they do in those video, in those like you action know, scenes. That that what you're talking about is still an issue today. I, you know, I don't know if you know this, but there's guilds, right? Do you know this word, guilds? Mm, guilds is like a collection of people who do a particular job. Does that make sense to you? Like an organization of people, and all of the members do this particular job. So there's a guild for directors. There's a guild for editors. And there's a guild for screen actors. It's called the Screen Actors Guild. Just recently, the Screen Actors Guild, as uh, sort of an organization that represents actors, passed a rule that said when they're doing scenes in movies that are intimate, sex-related kinds of scenes where somebody might be in a state of undress or something like that, that there is required to be an intimacy coordinator 
which is a, a position, a name for a position that they came up with that describes like there becomes a person's job on that set to talk to the actors one on one in advance of shooting a scene like that that says, OK, here's what the director wants to do. Here's what you would have to do for that. What works for you? What doesn't work for you? And that intimacy coordinator would go and talk to all of the actors in the scene and then go back and talk to the director about what everybody said. Because there exists so much pressure on the actors to want to be good team members that it's hard for them to say no in group environments. And so the intimacy coordinator's job is to go around and make really sure get a, happy. Like, exactly. And make sure that everybody's on the same page about what's expected. Communication is important. Yeah. Yeah. Coming from someone who doesn't communicate a lot. <laughs> You don't feel like you communicate a lot? I mean, I talk, but you're always saying, communicate. Tell us what you're going to do. What? That sounds exactly like me. What? That's a perfect impression. I sh- oh, it's <laughs> not. Why do you not feel like you're a good communicator? You're literally always saying, you need to tell us what you're going to do more instead of just acting out. You think so? You are literally always saying it. I, I say it. Yeah, I, I think a lot of times what what you what you wind up having an issue with is taking actions without consultation. And I think that you are very prone to identifying whatever it is that you think is the problem and coming up with your own solution for it and fixing it. And I think that a lot of times that puts you in a position with having come up with a solution to a problem that you haven't consulted other people. Which I, I think is just how challenging that is just for you in, in your life. Think about that. But think about it if you were trying to do things like that in the middle of a production where people were spending tens of millions of dollars. The amount of money being thrown around in some of these films is just overwhelming. And the desire to to be a part of the machine so that you don't get kicked out of the machine is is overwhelming. And it's easy to make compromises that you wouldn't make if somebody said, hey, why don't you take a few minutes and think about what you're actually okay with doing here? I suspect that that kind of problem is what happened with Alfred Hitchcock and, and Tippi Hedren. But I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm really not sure what happened there. I just know that there was a, lo- a lot of bad blood on that particular set. Are you relating to a Taylor Swift song or are you literally saying that there was bad blood? First of all, Taylor Swift did not invent the expression "bad blood." Bad blood is a very old expression that refers to. I am always referencing a Taylor Swift song. If you're asking, (laughs) what? (laughs) Wow! Oh my gosh! Um, So I I guess there were a couple other things that I want to talk about the birds that I thought was particularly interesting with the background of the work that was done on it. Um, You know, we're talking about environments where people want to be part of the machine, right? And reputations matter and involvement in other projects matter. Um, There were a couple of really famous people who came to work on this movie that I don't think you would have any idea that they did. And they were not famous at all for their association with Alfred Hitchcock. The first one is Ub Iwerks, U-B. I-W-E-R-K-S, Ub Iwerks, was Walt Disney's partner his creative partner before walt disney became walt disney of of the disney corporation and ub iwerks helped walt develop and animate mickey mouse and the steamboat willie cartoons 
they had kind of a falling out that they later repaired and, and kind of got back together. But Ub had quite a technical proficiency when it came to creating things. And so Alfred Hitchcock needed to solve his problem on the birds where like there were a lot of scenes of, in that film where birds are flying around and you really can't have your actors in a room with a thousand birds going crazy for precisely the reason the movie shows. They're going to get cut up and scratched and injured. And so they had to figure out a way how to shoot all of those birds and their actors and put them together in a way that made sense. And so Alfred Hitchcock got Ub Iwerks involved and he came on and did the matting process for that film where they take the, the multiple shots and put them together on top of each other so that you see the final product as it exists. And Ub actually got an Oscar nomination for his work on the birds. He did not win, but he did get an Oscar nomination for it. I thought that was pretty pretty cool. That is cool. Aren't like I know that you're talking about some Oscar stuff. Isn't like Granny Award the most the like the most rewarding of an Oscar? A Granny Award? A Grammy? She's, yeah, she's referring to a Grammy. So a Grammy how deep do I want to go on this? The Grammys are an award for music and record production. So Oscar is for movies. And Oscars are for movies. So we talked about guilds earlier and sort of the professional guild for people who make music. They get together and all of their members vote on who made the best music that year. And that's the Grammys. The Oscars are everybody who makes movies who's in the professional guild that makes movies. They get together and they talk about who made the best movies that year. So you can you can have people who win Grammys who go on to win an Oscar. The same thing is true for people who write musicals, the people who make musicals and perform them. They have an award system called the Tonys. And television has the Emmys. And television has the Emmys. And so you actually have people who work in all books? of those fields. Um, books have um, a variety of award systems. They're they're much less, I think, singularly focused on a particular set. It depends on the genre in which you write. Do you know what I mean when I say genre? Yeah, I know what a genre is. It's okay. A different type of writing, like drama versus fantasy. Yeah, you got it. Okay. I would say that probably the most famous of the awards for books would be for children's books. They give the Newbery Medal for writing and the Caldecott for illustration. But there are people who, what they do is they call it their EGOT winners. And EGOT means uh, you've won an Emmy, so you've done something in television. You've won a Grammy, so you've done something in music. You've won an Oscar, so you've done something in movies. And you've won a Tony, so you've done something on stage. And a lot of those people are really song makers EGOT? who are EGOT winners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just said Algeet. No, no, no. It's an acronym, E-G-O-T, Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony. He got. Yeah. So like the guy who created a lot of the music and, and the story from Frozen is an EGOT winner now because he's won an Emmy, Grammy, and Oscar and a Tony. There are a few, not as many, not very many, but not, not as little as you not would think. Not very many. And I think, I don't want to say all because I haven't looked at the list, but I can tell you most for sure, maybe all are songwriters or musicians or something like that because- no matter how amazing of an actor you are, you could be on television, you can be on the screen, you can be in a Tony, but you got to be able to sing or play an instrument or something to win a Grammy. Yeah. Um, what, what about you, 
Claire, do you does it does it matter to you if a movie wins an award or doesn't win an award? Does that make you like it more or less? I mean, sometimes movies that I hate win the best movie of the year award. <laughs> or for example, people that I hate or don't or di- or really much dislike, like Donald Trump uh-huh. gets something super special. Like when he won the election, he got put in the person of the year catalog oh the time was he time person of the year 2016 time person of the year yes yeah i mean he he definitely i mean he was absolutely the most influential person of person that year wait the end of his first term is this year that's right that means yay a new president everybody who watches the podcast mm, don't elect donald i was gonna say only (laughs) if he doesn't win re-election which I, i you know well, let's not talk politics on the podcast because I don't want to be depressed because I'm pretty sure this dude is going to win. He's going to win again, for sure. For He's sure. awful. You, you, you know how I feel about that, Claire, but... Uh, yeah, but the, the phrase win again kind of implies that he won the first time. <laughs> and I think that's debatable. <laughs> All right, Some let's... let's say Donald Trump cheated. Yeah, a lot of people. Congress. <laughs> no, no. In fact, what Congress is saying right now is that he did not cheat because the president can't cheat when the president does whatever the president does. Oh, that's true. You're right. That's their fundamental position. Right. By the way, that that's not a partisan position. That is the official position of the United States of America. And it has been so for a long time. So you just think about whatever that means about the executive branch. Anyways. Let's talk about the birds some more. So we talked about Ub Iwerks and we talked about Oscars and EGOT winners and all that sort of stuff. But the other person who's been involved in this and who was involved in Rear Window, which we talked about last week, um, that you liked very much, is a woman named Edith Head. Do you know this name? All right. Then I'm glad I brought it up because I'm really excited to talk about this. So Edith Head was a costume designer and she is... Like um, Melissa and Patrick? Mm, sort of sort of like Millicent Patrick designed the creature look and suit for Gilman so she she is in that way a costume designer most of the work that Edith Head did was in not so much in fantastical productions but like dramas and comedies and thrillers and suspense films um, like we've been watching for um, like Alfred Hitchcock, right, for Operation Master of Suspense. So in, in, in Rear Window, the clothes that Jimmy Stewart is wearing and the beautiful dresses. Oh, uh, um, those dresses were awesome. The dress that Grace Kelly's wearing in that, like, you know, Edith Head is, is responsible as costume designer for bringing those onto the set and all the look that people are wearing when they're I performing. I want that. I want the dress where it's like, where she like has like- The black the, and white one? Yeah, the black and white yeah. one where it's like black at the bottom with like dots and then it's like white. Yeah. That is beautiful. But then I would want it in navy blue and white. No, I would want it in black and white just as she wore it. Yes. Yes, that's true. No, but so Edith Head, um, you ha- might actually be familiar with Edith Head without realizing it. You have seen the movie The Incredibles, yes? Yes. Okay. Um, so do you know Darling. When- yes. <laughs> so do you know when The Incredibles, they go to get their costumes updated? And there's the like the very short woman with the, like, the darling, this is what you have to do if you want to be uh, a superhero. You have to wear this, like this, You are right? not a very good impression. <laughs> So the character Edna Emo, not so much her look, I think, but her approach and the relationship that she builds, especially with Invis- Invisigirl. Is that the name, her name, the mom's name? 
No, no she's Elastigirl. not a girl. Elastigirl. Girl. Oh my god. There's um, no such thing as Invisigirl. Right. No, I know that. I know that. I know what's happening. You're a bad Incredibles fan. You're a bad Incredibles fan. That movie's awesome. I love it. I've gone to bat for it since it came out. I don't know what you're talking about. I said Elastigirl. <laughs> you said you said Invis- you said Inza Girl. That's um, not even close. No, but so her um Edna Emo's relationship with Elastigirl, how it's very personable and she kind of knows her as a person and uses that to inform the costumes that she's creating. Edith Head was actually really very famous for developing such close personal relationships. Um, back when these movies were being made and she was working as costume designer, the people who did costume design worked for Paramount Pictures. They worked for Universal Studios. And when they're making a studio film, they would, I assume that there's some wheeling and dealing with a director about what of their staff would be made available to them. But Aren't- Universal or Paramount provided the costume designer to them. And part of the reason that Edith Head was so successful is because she was very well known for listening, especially to her actresses in the films, about what they liked and who they were as people and what would make them look good and feel good while they were on set. And the really, and, and I know that you want to say something, Claire, and I'm going to let you, but the biggest thing that was most successful about Edith Head is that the Oscars in 1948 added a category for costume design for awards. And Edith Head received, um, it was like 35 Oscar nominations and eight Oscar wins in the course of her career, which makes her the most Oscar winning woman in the history of the Oscars. Oh, that's neat. Now, in, in fairness, Edith Head did have a bit of advantage because until 1967... The Oscars had a category each year for color films and black and white films. And so some of her nominations and Oscar wins were, in fact, in multiple years where she was working in a black and white picture and in a color picture. That being said, she was an incredibly busy woman and incredibly good at her job, whether they were shooting in color or in black and white and at the top of her game and in the most demand. So she's really remarkably successful. Also, I got to say, I understand why they dropped, you know, the black and white category and just had one category now when when it's fairly rare for a black and white film to be produced. But back when they were making both, at, you know, regularly, I do think those should be separate categories because any type of visual artwork and costuming is definitely that. If, it, if you're shooting in color, that's a very different consideration than if you're shooting in black and white. Oh, I, I agree a thousand percent. In, in point of fact, I think, the cinematography for shooting in black and white versus shooting in color are totally different. Light and shadow play totally different in them. Yeah. And there's a really big conversation, I think, going on in the film community right now because they're, they've recently started releasing some films in black and white cuts. Like there's a Fury Road black and white cut. Um, there's a Logan black and white cut that people just went nuts for. But it really does make a difference if you're intending to shoot in black and white versus if you just drain all the color out when you get to the end. I am not looking to trivialize it. I think one of the nice things about the black and white cuts of those movies is it does highlight the wonder of the shots that they have gotten because it takes out all of the beautiful colors that go into it. But shooting in black and white is different. Um, so I definitely get keeping the award for that. But I don't know. On the other hand, it's all movie making. And by the time 1967, 68 rolls around, I feel like 
you're choosing to shoot in black and white for an artistic reason versus you're choosing to shoot in color for an artistic reason. It's much less of a, do we have the budget to afford a Technicolor film camera? And so in that way, I think it's okay to lose it because really what you're evaluating is artistic choices at the end of the year for the Academy. Um, So I think that's okay. Yeah, I agree with that. But I think like currently actors can win for best actor in a lead or best actor in a supporting role. Mm-hmm. You know, you have categories for short films and mm-hmm. categories for full-length films. You have categories for animated films. So I don't think it's a cheat that she won in both categories. Is my point. oh no 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 no. I I don't I don't think it was a cheat at all. But I do think that she was in a field where at the peak of her capabilities, she had the opportunity to be nominated multiple times in a year and receive multiple awards in a year, which made it, which I think gave her the ability to do that. Does having the ability for Michael Jordan to win two champions in a year mean that he's less of a basketball player? Absolutely not. I'm not taking anything away from Edith Head. I'm just, I, I, she was at the top of her game in a time where they made a distinction between black and white and color films. No, I didn't mean to take anything away from her accomplishments. Not really. So yeah, but you know, that's all some of the behind the scenes facts. But the biggest, most shocking fact about this film, I think that all of us agree is the most shocking fact about this film. Do you know what I'm going to say? Da birds. I have a. Da I have a hunch. Go ahead. Yeah, is that when this movie was made, Tippi Hedren was thirty three, <laughs> yeah. and Rod Taylor was thirty three. Also thirty three. Like Tippi Hedren being thirty three, I was like, oh, huh, okay, yeah. I, th- I thought maybe she was a little bit younger than that. Um, but Rod Taylor being thirty three, that dude looks like he's fifty seven. I don't. I don't think he's 57, but he definitely looks like in look his at upper Rod 40s. Taylor. Yeah. Look at Rod Taylor in The Birds, mm-hmm. and then look at Tom Cruise mm-hmm. in Mission Impossible Fallout. Mm-hmm. Or in Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Or no, no, no. Stop right there. You cannot use Tom Cruise as the measuring stick for what any person of any age is supposed to look like. Okay, fine. Look at me. You know, a balding dad bod having guy. At 37. At 37, compared to the catcher's mitt that Rod Taylor is on the birds. <laughs> catcher's mitt. Oh my All I'm saying is the 60s yes. must have been a he pretty has, tough decade. He has a little bit of sun damaged skin. Jeez. Everybody's I, I just, a critic. It, 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 it messed me up because Jessica Tandy is 54 in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and she is absolutely old enough to be Rod Taylor's mother in that film. But the way that he kept calling her darling. Oh, that was and the so fact creepy. That they looked and dear. Like, and dear. And, and, and the fact that, I mean, Jessica Tandy at 54 playing a mom of 54, it would be unheard of today. They bring in a 70-year-old woman, you know, or, 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 or vice versa. They would go like, if you're 35, you, you get to play the mom right. um, in, gonna in this film. Give you some harsh lighting. and Right, 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 right. But, but the fact that they look of similar age to me now, I think goes to show, A, how hard that decade was, I guess, for men who worked in the sun. And smoked, I assume, 47 packs of cigarettes a day. That makes sense now. (laughs) Because in all the Disney movies that Walt Disney made, one Disney character is missing one parent or having no parents at all. Like, for example, The Little Mermaid doesn't have a mom. Yeah. Only a dad. On this one, he lost his dad. There's a Disney person in the production. There's a Disney person in the production of this. He has no dad. Is that a coincidence? <laughs> <laughs> it's 
So Claire has a theory that Disney is toxic to parents. Well, first of all, I agree, Claire, that a lot of the children's dramas in Disney rely on the fact that there are parents missing or gone missing in order to be like the story that defines the characters that you see in the film. Absolutely, that's true. That's true in every single one of the Golden Age of Disney's movies that were happening in the 90s films. And that is true for every single uh, Silver Age Disney film that I can think of off the top of my head. But it's also... Dead parents are everywhere. It's a big deal. But it's also, I mean, if you even look at classic fairy tales... in the Dark Age of Disney. Yeah, it was during the Dark Age of Disney, you're right. But even if you look at classic fairy tales, you know, I until I was like in middle school, I thought that stepmothers were just inherently bad because are they not? Every fairy tale stepmother is mean. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. Step parents get a bad rap. um, Yeah. In the the film. In all fairness, I I think a lot of step parents uh, really come in and do the absolute best that they can. In, in really a situation that is pretty tough to win in. In very difficult situations. And I if totally you want to agree. talk about an unfairly represented segment of the population, <laughs> it's step parents on film. It is. Yep. I, if you ask me if freely, I would say it's Baldwin because. Yes, I know you have theories. I have about an Baldwin. issue with Baldwin on screen as mm-hmm. a Baldwin myself. But no, it's I, I think step parents are probably the biggest, most maligned subset it's, it's of people. It's stepmothers and bald men and bald stepfathers are probably Oh, a bald stepfather, you should just hit with your car. <laughs> Even if they're in their living room, you should drive your car just into their living room. Through the front window. That's what the movie's taught. Take me, him out. Oh my god. <laughs> anyway, but what I was getting at is I think that that is a recurring theme in even in children's literature and Disney and stuff like that, because there aren't too many scenarios where a child has adversity to overcome that other kids can relate to and understand. Can I tell you something, Claire? This is something I think about a lot. The thing that I truly don't see in movies enough are films about married couples who like each other and are happy to be married. Because in a film where marriage is prominent, One of the easiest ways to generate tension in the story is to put their relationship in jeopardy. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the biggest reasons that I love... Go ahead. Part of like the the movie that we watched about the big mansion and the people are starting to fight because of how big the mansion is and how much work they have to do. Money pit? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The Money Pit is a great example of a movie where a marriage is put into jeopardy just as a matter of course. But even in movies where a marriage is not the focus of it, marriages are often put in tension just as a way to generate conflict in the story to keep it interesting. There's a movie called The Mummy, which we should definitely watch. And I think maybe in our next like Universal Horror Deep Dive, we'll watch The Mummy, the original The Mummy. And then we'll watch the one starring Brendan Fraser and um, and Rachel Weisz as a couple that get together and get married. And that particular film series is like three films long. But like every time you meet them in the movies, they are happy and in love with each other and solving problems equally and capably together. And I love that. And you really don't see very many movies about happy marriages where the couples work together to solve their problems. It's uh, It bums me out. Uh, but that's just my perspective as a person who's been in a relationship for 20 years and is 37. <laughs> Are you is laughing it, at me? How dare you? I mean, maybe just a little. 
Yes, Claire? Isn't Paramount Pictures and Universal like like the word rivals? Yes, especially back in this time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big rivals. Yeah, different studios. Yeah, Although so. it's it's not too surprising when when the film industry generates billions of dollars a year if you're a premier temple production agency. If you're an independent film, you generate tens of dollars a year. <laughs> tens of dollars. You might be a thousandaire. Yeah, I was going to say, it's like, what's his name from Everybody Loves Raymond? I'm a thousandaire, thanks to Raymond. There you go. <laughs> you're a thousandaire. I am. You're a thousandaire. You're a thousandaire. Everybody's a thousandaire. Except you. <laughs> Goodbye. Except me. I'm not a thousandaire. I'm a, I'm a dollar heir. I'm a dollar ower. Yeah, I was gonna say, what's what is it when you owe money? That's that's debtor. They have prisons for us. Oh yeah. So we've been talking for quite a while. Does anybody have anything to actually say about the birds? I think that I don't know that it, it's really anything that needs like deep discussion, but I do think it's worth noting that the birds of all the Hitchcock films that we watched is definitely the most active. Oh, for sure. You know, Other than Psycho. Well, the last. No, I half, would say even more active. The than last Psycho. half is very active. The first half, I don't think, is that active. Chit chat. But even the first half, you know, she's she's going to his apartment. She's going to the pet shop. She's driving to the place. She's you know like she's constantly on the move. She's running the boat. She's going across. She's talking yeah, to different okay. people. Yeah. She's, she's going a, in and out of diners. That she's driving to the place. Yeah, like she she drives we from get a San Francisco. Scene, yeah. Oh, to Bodega Bay. Driving to the place, as in, like, sometimes people refer to a place as a house. And you're saying driving to the place, and I was like, is it drive? She drives. Oh. Yeah, she, no, she rented she, a boat to go across. But it's compared to his other films, especially the ones that we watched, it, there's just more activity and less of a reliance on dialogue. I mean, there still is dialogue, but there's much less of a reliance on it. And I think one of the most interesting scenes in that film is when they are in the house and the birds are attacking the house. He creates this loud noise that are the wings flapping and the birds shrieking and stuff like that. Yeah. And if you notice, um, I thought this, I was paying really close attention to it this time. The actors move their mouths as though they are trying to talk to each other and the noise is just so deafening that they you know, that they can't hear each other. In reality, I don't think they're speaking at all. I think they have been instructed to move their mouths as though they are delivering the lines and not actually say anything so that the effect for the viewer is that the noise must be so overwhelming that you cannot even hear someone speak. And, you know, you can do that. And so uh, even without cranking up the volume on the screen, that effect is still delivered. And I thought that was really interesting. Hmm. Um, but it's much, much less of a reliance on dialogue than his other films. So it doesn't really surprise me that it was your favorite of the... Yeah, wait, no, but did we settle on that? Claire, is The Birds your favorite of the Alfred Hitchcock that we watched? How would you rank them? So if you're talking from least to greatest, it's Rope, then... Um... Then seven or eight spaces of, of nothing... Yes. Yeah. Then it watching gets tricky paint dry. The, the three are really good. Then watching paint dry. <laughs> <laughs> then root canal. Then yeah. Okay. So rope is at the bottom. What? What's your top? What's your? What's your three? Mm. The other three are tied. Rope no, you can't tied. say they're tied. You got to. No, rank come them. on. All right, start from the top. What's your favorite? 
Okay, my favorite is... If I said we could watch another one right now, which one would you want to watch? Like we would watch that one again? Yeah. Yes. Ooh, definitely Rear Window. Why oh, do you say that? Okay. It's not that it's my favorite, but the movie itself and the story is really awesome. Mm, I agree. Yeah. But my favorite movie is definitely Dubbards. <laughs> because of the corpses. It's like the, the most fun holes. to watch. You, I there mean, in all no fairness, in, in this, I have a picture, and, and maybe I'll share it on the social medias, I'm not sure, but while we were watching the birds, there were a couple points where you covered up your eyes for concern as to what was going to happen with the characters, and I definitely took a picture of one of those moments. My personal favorite, and I was nudging your dad to show him, is, I don't remember what scene it was, I should have written it down, but at some point during kind of the climax of the film, you had a hand covering one eye. And the other eye was fully open. And I remember thinking to myself, what is she trying to achieve with this? Like, <laughs> I only want to see half of what's happening. I'm doing this. I'm going to keep my good eye closed. Depth perception is <laughs> overrated when watching a 2D movie. My hand was like this. Mm-hmm. It was like if there was anything. Oh, bad. so you were ready to snap it shut quickly. Got yeah, it. Yeah, it's a door. Um, so this is, I think, funny, but also true. When your dad and I were in college and we tried to watch the birds in the house, my cat loved watching the movie and she would sit in front of the television screen and watch. And every time the <laughs> birds came on the screen, she would try and get them with her paw. Well, she got up on the entertainment unit one time yeah. and tried to get the birds from the top of the entertainment unit yeah. and fell off trying to get the birds. Yes, she did. <laughs> um, and she also loved the motorboat. When the motorboat would go across the bay, she would try and grab that. But so I... Uh, when when we were talking about Rope and it was right after we watched Rope and it was just so not your favorite. I was sort of thinking like, well, I'm pretty sure she's going to like the birds though because it is so active and there's so much going on um, and uh, that ev- even an animal liked watching the birds. <laughs> <laughs> even an animal liked watching the birds. So Claire will probably like it too. There you go. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's a good example of motherly love. Good job. You're welcome. But I do think it's relevant, though. In all seriousness, I mean, I'm mostly teasing Claire. But but if you are if you are a parent and you're trying to decide what film to show your kids, you know, from the ones that we watched, I do think it's relevant that you can have a relatively short attention span, maybe even a feline level short attention span, and still find the birds interesting. But you should know that. According to Claire, it's the scariest. I I think Dubbers the birds is the longest of the movies that we watched. Yeah, Dubbers and Rear Windows, not Rear Windows. Dubbers and Rear Window is a movie I would recommend, but, but not, not Psycho? Psycho. That's why we've been in a relationship for twenty years. That right there, because <laughs> <laughs> we're on the same wavelength. I, we're waiting. Yeah, but not Psycho. You wouldn't recommend Psycho because there's much more s- murder scenes. And it's not that it's a bad movie or it's a, or it's a relatively scary movie. There's nudity scenes. You see the murders happening. There's lots of cover-up stories. There's so because, creepy because guys. Because the murder happens in a shower, you think that's a big no-no for sharing? Well, not a big no-no, but like a lot of parents would not show it. Of the four films, did any of them give you... I don't want to say nightmares because you don't really have nightmares from watching movies, but <laughs> you don't really have frightmares. But did any of them give you a little like ooh, feeling, you know, make you a little nervous at any point? Yeah. Birds. The birds did. I guess that's going to wrap up this conversation about Alfred Hitchcock. 
aka Operation Master of Suspense, aka not my best operational title ever. I could have done better, but I didn't. It was 1 a.m. when I came up with that title. Deal with it. It's what I sell a lot. I don't know why. Anyways, I think we had a lot of fun doing Alfred Hitchcock stuff, and I suspect that we will come back and do more Alfred Hitchcock titles in the future. But since that's in our rear window, I'm going to look through the rope. (laughs) Nope, that didn't work. That doesn't even work. (laughs) I'm going to look through the front window. And what we have coming up next week, we're going to actually do a segment into classic musicals. And the first one up is going to be one that I am really excited to watch. Claire, I think you're going to love it. But to be honest, I don't care because I'm excited to see this movie again. But uh, Dancing in the Rain, no. No. Damn it. Singing in the Rain. And I'm not editing that out. Singing in the Rain. I know what's happening. It's not the middle of the night. Uh, It's fine. Everything is fine. All right. So Singing in the Rain will be next week's episode. And Danielle and I were talking last night about the musicals that we have in store for you, Claire. I'm really excited for this lineup. Some of them are going to be first watches for me. Most of them are going to be rewatches. But I am a not-so-secret fan of the musical. And I know none of the terminology. I just love the singing and the dancing and the costumes. It's awesome. Such talented people. I'm really looking forward to it. So that will be that. Let's see. We need to do the outro business now. Claire, why don't you take us through that? Make sure to subscribe to BACEA Podcast. Make sure On to- Twitter. On Twitter. And check out the chat cast. You can find the It Modcast podcast at It Modcast on Twitter. You can find the chat cast, which is also an In the Mouth of Darkness production, at It Modcast on Twitter because we run the feed through that as well. But the chat cast is its own feed. We interview independent filmmakers about their hustle there. You should check that out on the In the Mouth of Darkness podcast. They talk about all the things that they're excited about and dorks for, which is wonderful movies that are going on today and comics and all that sort of stuff. Where can people find our podcast? Find us at Apple Podbean. I think you could also find us on iHeartRadio. Yeah, that's true. You can find us on Spotify. Basically, wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find us. And if we're not there, tell me and I'll make sure we are there. But I tell you where the big one is, is Apple Podcasts. Because you can subscribe and give us a five-star rating there, which which only listeners like you can provide. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Don't get hit by the birds. (laughs) Don't get hit by the birds.